Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Oh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Do you think bananas are healthy? Think again. I'm Dr. Stephen Gundry, best-selling author of the Plant Paradox series, and on the Dr. Gundry podcast, you're going to learn the foods to eat and the ones to avoid, to lose weight, boost your energy, and feel your most vibrant, active self this year. You'll also learn simple tips from the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Plus, you'll discover the truth about calories, how running could actually be hurting your health, and why fat won't make you fat. Subscribe now to the Dr. Gundry Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Again, keep... uh, Keep the support and the wind and the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship. We appreciate that so much. And do check out DrDrew.com. Also, uh, I announced to Gary today how much I'm having fun over at TikTok. And I'm trying to learn that TikTok. It's the craziest thing. The, the fact that people spend so much time thinking about condensing information into 60 seconds. If you really follow scientists and the clinicians and things there's, and, and business people, there's a lot of stuff to be learned there. But I, too, am active there, so follow me at Dr. Drew and also the Instagram, Dr. Drew Pinsky. And uh, it's all at the website, so check it out there. And don't forget our streaming shows, which uh, you can uh, check out most days. Today, uh, it's my privilege to welcome Dr. Rick Doblin. Uh, website is maps, M-A-P-S dot org. Um, uh, Dr. Doblin is the executive director of Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. People have been asking me for some time to get a good representative from maps in here. And finally, we have pulled it off, and we are delighted to have him. You can follow all the MAPS information at, at, at MAPS on Twitter, at MAPS News on Instagram. And of course, there's a YouTube, uh, which is pertinent specifically to the study, one of the studies we're going to be talking about today, MAPS MDMA. Dr. Dowland, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. So but before we get into the paper that you're so uh, excited about and I think is going to be fascinating into you know, uh, adding hopefully some uh, interesting – um, therapeutic interventions to the spectrum of what we can do with uh, assisted PTSD therapy. T- talk about, tell us about MAPS first, so people know what that is if they are not already familiar, and then we'll talk a little bit about psychedelics and therapeutics before we get into the study. How about that? Okay, that sounds great. All right. So MAPS is a nonprofit organization that I started in April of April eighth, actually nineteen eighty six. So, um, and it it was started after MDMA was criminalized in 1985. So MAPS Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I felt I needed the word psychedelic in the title just to um, be like a flag to attract people. Um, MDMA was used therapeutically from the middle 70s to the early 80s under the code name Adam. And it leaked out of those circles and began to be used as a party drug under the name ecstasy. I learned about MDMA as Adam in 1982, and it was clear that there was going to be the backlash because there was uh, already sales under the name ecstasy in public settings, and this was Nancy Reagan and John Ronald Reagan, an escalation of the drug war. So I started a nonprofit before MAPS, connected with Buckminster Fuller, actually, in 1984. I didn't know about that connection. Yeah. Well, it was called Earth Metabolic Design Lab. It was a not nonprofit that a friend of mine had in connection with Buckminster Fuller and he wasn't using this nonprofit and we we needed a vehicle for suing the DEA to try to keep MDMA therapeutic use legal and the the nonprofit Earth Metabolic Design was for um, new forms of energy and we we said okay that that can count psychedelic energy <laughs> that's <laughs> a new kind of energy <laughs> we can figure that out so we sued the DEA um, we slowed them down from criminalizing the DEA administrative law judge said it should be schedule three which means 
illegal for recreational use, but legal for medical use. The administrator of the DEA ignored the recommendation, which was heartbreaking. And, and we won a couple of times in the appeals courts, but it, it was eventually DEA lawyers figured out how to criminalize therapeutic and recreational use. Hmm. And so MAPS, I started in 86 as a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, in a sense, with the primary focus on MDMA. Has there a documentary ever been done on MAPS? Um, there has been a, a book on it. There, there are some people um, doing documentaries about parts of our work, but the history of MAPS has not yet been. Available. It just seems like something that would be so fascinating for people to see because there's so many issues that pop up right at, the, right, right at your birth. It's very yeah. interesting. So, yeah, I've always been very concerned. That's the kindest word I can use about this notion that there are chemicals that are either good or bad, good or evil. That is the fucking most nonsense. I, I, I mean, there's there's chemicals and there's the effect on the human being and there's the relationship that the human being has with the chemicals. And that's that. And, that, and, and it's neither good nor bad, evil nor, nor holy. It's just a, a part of biology. Well, well, that's so right. And, and, and the, the – um the core, uh, yeah, they're just tools, and how they're used is the term. And the, the core problem with the drug war that we have is that it makes certain drugs bad or good, and right. it ignores the relationship. But the best example to illustrate what you're saying is that the only person at the FDA that ever won the Presidential Medal of Honor was this woman, Frances Kelsey. And the reason she got the Presidential Medal of Honor was because she blocked thalidomide from coming into the United States because mm. it, um, there was already some reports about it causing birth defects. It was used for morning sickness. And so thalidomide was the quintessential bad drug. And, and, right. and the FDA got rewarded for um, blocking it coming into the U.S. But decades later, thalidomide is now a medicine approved by the FDA for um, cancer, certain forms of cancer and leprosy. So it just illustrates that it's about how something is used. Yeah. And then Paracelsus, his famous quote is that the difference between a poison and a medicine is dose. Ah, interesting. That's really interesting because all, all medicines are potentially poisonous. That's exactly yeah. right. Brown um, in water. But it, it's interesting to me, absolutely. It's interesting to me how, so the, because of this making chemicals bad, uh, the only way to dig out from under th that is to make them holy and, and only good, which is what we're doing with cannabis now, right? So it's only good. It's now the it, it's the panacea, only good, good for everybody under all circumstances at all time. And you know, just like things are not all bad, they're not all good. And it's funny. I I you know I'm an internist by training and. I had a family practitioner dad who just drilled into my head that medicine – medications are dangerous. Medications are dangerous. You only use them when the risk-reward clearly indicates. And and that risk-reward diathesis has has shifted in recent years where we're, we sort of think of medicines as the solution to everything. You know, it, it's it, – it's, it's, we, we have to kind of get back in the middle somewhere where we just think objectively that these things are, like you said, tools, instruments, helpful – I also get I get kind of weird about people who who get freaked out about drug companies too. Oh, big pharma, yeah, big pharma has been culpable. They got problems there, but but using pharmaceutical agents, whether it's a hallucinogenic uh, from a nonprofit or uh, a drug that a, a large company distributes, what else do I use as an internist? What exactly do you think we do as physicians? What what is at our disposal? We have physical therapy. We have we recommend maybe psychotherapy. Everything else is either surgery or medication. Everything, and I don't do surgery, so I use things to change physiology. Those are called medications. But anyway, that that's just my well. well to, to follow up on your yeah. your statement about people make things holy, that you know, there's a word hallucinogen. I don't use that word because that's a negative pejorative word. It's about it's false, it's delusion, it's hallucination, but. People have come up with a new word for psychedelics called entheogen. Which oh, yeah. Means empathogen. Empathogen? Well, no. Empathogen is about MDMA, like to promote okay. empathy. But entheogen is, is meant to, to reveal the God within. So that's a word I don't use either because that's slanted positively. It's not true that every time you have a psychedelic, you have a spiritual experience. Right. But they're trying to reframe it that way. 
But what I also want to say about for-profit pharma is that I started MAPS in 86 as non-profit pharma. Since that time, we've raised over $100 million in donations, That's great. which is pretty amazing. But in December of 2014, we started a for-profit pharma company, but it's the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. So we maximize public benefit, not profit. It's kind of an innovation of capitalism, and it's 100% owned by the nonprofit. So we have the nonprofit owns the for-profit. And it was important for me to tell stories to donors that we're not going to continually ask you for money because there's so many different therapeutic uses of MDMA. We're a rare nonprofit in that we have a product at the end that we're trying to get approved by the FDA and we could make some money. And then whatever money we make from selling MDMA at a profit, we can use for the mission of the nonprofit, which means more research right. and more public education. Fantastic. And so, so even us as a nonprofit pharma own a for-profit but public benefit. Pharma. Yeah, I mean, I mean that makes sense. I, I, I've worked for something called the Prostate Cancer Foundation, and they, and they they fund amazing research, and they keep wondering, should we participate in the benefit of that research in some small way so we can keep doing what we do? It's a crazy thing when when you're a you know you're not for profit and you're solely reliant on donations. Yeah, it's hard. Do you know the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation story? I don't. Oh my God. Okay. So this is the best example of a um, nonprofit pharma. So um, they donated um, $150 million to, uh, this is about 20 years ago now, to a company that uh, to develop drugs for um, cystic fibrosis. But they retained a percentage of right. the royalty if right. the drugs. It's like, like that's, what, that's what universities do. Yeah. And then this company was bought by Vertex, the for-profit that they invented, and they invented this. They, they came up with this drug for cystic fibrosis, and then the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation sold their royalty rights to Royalty Pharma for $3.3 billion, mm. and now they're massively endowed, and now just out of their income, they can fund more yeah. research into cystic fibrosis. Yeah, as long as so these that, companies never never change, you know, divert from their core mission. I think that's the way to do it. It's hard, though. It's hard when that your core mission is really a certain thing, and you're also trying to hang on to not to profitable stuff, especially when you're fighting with universities. But that's a separate topic. Yeah. I want to stay with hallucin. To the what are we going to? We're not going to use the word hallucinogen. What should we? Let's just use. Let's just use the the real terms: MDMA and and uh, other other drugs like oh, that. Okay, that's good. Uh, but it, I, I do well, one way to find out who's been funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse is yeah. if they use the word hallucinogen. Oh, that's that's interesting. That's very interesting. What 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 word shall I use so I don't keep slipping into that? Well, well, psychedelic or okay. MDMA. Okay, psychedelic. Um, has MDMA been your main focus? Is that the drug? Yes. That, okay, it, for strategic reasons. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I've said to people that if I were stranded on a deserted island, you know, I was a shipwrecked sailor and I was on a deserted island and I could only have one drug, what would it be? And it would be LSD. But why? For why? 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 Well, because um, LSD, you just have to surrender to it. With MDMA, you can negotiate with it, meaning that there may be things that I would need to know that I don't want to know about myself or my history, and and so with LSD, you you it's very difficult to negotiate. You know, you, you kind of can be brought into the uncomfortable new or the uncomfortable suppressed. MDMA is phenomenal. And um, I love it. And it's it, for strategic reasons, we've chosen it. And I think it's the best introduction to psychedelics of all the drugs. But so it's 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 definitely strategic reasons. And that's why almost of, of the 100 million that we've raised so far, around 75 million have been spent on developing MDMA into a medicine. And other we've done a little bit with LSD, with cannabis, with ayahuasca, with ibogaine, but um, and public education, harm reduction. But it's mostly MDMA. So uh, a million questions now. Uh, did did one of the uh, psychedelic areas of research that has always intrigued me is the LSD, psilocybin, and end of life. Yes. Is that you guys? And if so, what what do you what do you understand about that as a therapeutic? Well, um, we did start the first LSD research in about thirty five years in Switzerland in two thousand and eight, and it, it was LSD for end of life related anxiety. Um, we also were starting in the um, early 90s to try to do MDMA research for end-of-life anxiety. Um, we have since completed a study of MDMA for 
um, end of life related anxiety. Um, during the 90s, 1992 is when the FDA opened the door to psychedelic research. Mm. In 1990, they gave Rick Strassman, a doctor, permission to do DMT research, but that was, he was saying that DMT is the only endogenous psychedelic, and maybe you get too much of it in your brain, that's what causes schizophrenia. So it was kind of a negatively oriented study. We were then went to the FDA, they rejected five of our protocols, and we were trying to do MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety. And the reason there was because we need a sympathetic patient population for a demonized, stigmatized drug. And so everybody is that, concerned. That's crazy that, that you have to think about it that way, but okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I ended up going to the Kennedy School of Government because I couldn't get a clinical psych PhD because nobody would let me in to do psychedelic research oh, in Jesus. the 80s. So, oh so I, I've, I've got my master's and PhD from the Kennedy School, and that's where I learned a lot about strategy. But um, we need a sympathetic patient population. And because the concerns over neurotoxicity at the time were so overblown that but people didn't look like they had problems. It was like, oh, you'll get problems later. Um, so we figured if we work with people that are dying that have 12 months or less to live, then nobody can say you can't do the study because right. they're going to have problems later. So, right. so FDA then opened the door to psychedelic research in 92, said they would regulate it the same way they regulate other research, which meant that we had to start at the beginning, which was a phase one dose response safety study. And we did that with uh, Dr. Charlie Grove at Harbor UCLA. And then near the end of the 90s, we wanted to switch back to the cancer patients because the neurotoxicity thing was still growing. Um, we didn't quite have a good enough answer for that yet. But the rave movement had grown and the use of ecstasy had grown. And so Charlie said, no, this is too controversial. I'm going to switch to psilocybin, mm. which people don't even know that that's connected to mushrooms. <laughs> And so that's how the psilocybin end of life began. Mm. And that was actually a good thing because <clears throat> I felt that MDMA is even more perfectly suited to PTSD. And so in 1999, we started the first study with PTSD and then 2000 in the U.S. And, and that's where we're at now, finishing our first phase three study. But we're going to we're going to talk. We're going to get to that. I'm going to talk all about that. But I'll say that the end of life work um, is so important. Um, yes, I agree. It, it, and. It, look, it looks amazing. The data looks amazing. UCLA is still doing it, as far as I know. And every yeah. time I see them sort of peek out and sort of report, it, it just looks amazing. Yeah, well, NYU, Hopkins, it's, um, it's incredible. Um, it, actually, that's working better, it seems like, a little bit than the um, treatment-resistant depression, the, the sort of depression related to end-of-life or dying, because uh. that's more – um, episodic, you could say, to, to a specific thing that you could help people reorient to. But but the ego dissolution part of the classic psychedelics um, helps people to realize that um, that we're just part of a bigger picture. You well, know, that, that that's could, what they that, usually report, right? That the yeah. or or I I kind of when I see, read the reports, I also think they're reporting that they can tolerate the dissolution of self. You yeah. know what I mean? That's a, so. It's almost uh, it's almost an exposure therapy, much the way you know you're exposed to a phobia, right? Their well, fear of dying, and we expose you to the experience, and oh, oh, that's something good, so I can tolerate it. Yeah. Now, one of the classic um, aspects of a mystical experience, whether catalyzed by psychedelics or not, is this sense of unity and connection. Like yeah. you're, that's the core element. That we're part of everything, and another part of it is the transcendence of time and space that you kind of get this sense that um, it's been billions of years of evolution, that we're just a blip, you know, but that everything that came before produced us. And then we become, so it's the E equals MC squared, you know, that energy is the uh, trans, nothing is lost. Mm -hmm. you, you get that sense that um, even though this individual life that we're in is temporary, it's, it's that there's something um, to appreciate about death, that death makes life possible, that it makes, Life's precious. And, and you, you've taken some of these? I've taken all of them. All well, of I can't them. say I've taken all of these. There's still all sorts of new ones, but uh, right. you know, but I feel it's part of my job. Right. I, I must I, I have. So yeah, I have. And I've also been trained as a therapist and I've I've worked with people in the um, early days of MDMA with people that were dying. And and one of the most moving experiences I've ever had was um uh a woman who was um, dying in her thirties, the mother was um, appealed to me to um, help out the daughter. The mother was uh, taught 
uh, mindfulness. So the mother, mother and I became therapists for the daughter. And there was this series of experiences. Um, and then um, several days before this young woman died, um, the mother and the father came together. They had been divorced. The father wanted to be there. The mother decided to take uh, MDMA with her daughter. I didn't. So, um, but but the moment that was the most beautiful was this this the, the young woman couldn't even sit up. She she was so close to dying. But her her father took one hand and sat on the one side of the bed, and her mother took the other hand, and they sort of pulled her up so that, that she could be facing them, and. This woman who's about to die said how beautiful it is to be able to die with your mother and father here with you. Wow. And it was like she rose out of the tragedy of this premature death into the beauty of the life that she had had. Yes. And it was just exquisite. And also, she had been in such pain for weeks before that um, she stayed alive only for this session. Oof. And because of the pain, she was under massive opiates, yeah. which make you kind of tranquilize that knock you out of it. But the MDMA is MDMA methylene dioxymethamphetamine. So it has properties to stimulate. It's a stimulant in some ways, and it wakes her up. So the MDMA in combined with the opiates woke up this woman and the synergistic effect had better pain control than she had in any other way. And so they were able to recapitulate their whole lives together of this young woman and her parents. Jeez. And it was like this miraculous transformation from somebody that could barely speak for a couple of weeks because she was so, you know, tranquilized by these opiates. But then she could come alive for this last discussion to say goodbye to her parents. I, I think it's going to now that research has not really been done because people, have, you know, this woman was on all these other drugs. There's all these other drug drug interaction issues. Yeah. The, the work that's being done with people that are with life-threatening illnesses are when they're not at death's door. It's not like a hospice situation. Right. It's more, but, but I do think we need to move into the hospice settings as well. And, and it would be tremendously helpful. I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I've become aware that there is a whole sort of world of therapists using plants uh, with psychedelic properties, it's an underworld. It's 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 you know exists unto itself. There's a lot of people in it, both on the professional side and on the the patient side. Um, are they interacting with you? And and they have kind of a different way of looking at things. They talk about the plants sort of informing the experience. They they sort of it's not a biological sort of model they're using. You know what I'm talking about. You must know what I'm talking about. I, I do know. Yeah. What you're talking about. I, I might say for somebody who has done all these drugs and had some mystical experiences, I'm. Um, a lot of dubious. I'm very dubious about some of the like the plants speak to me. Yeah, know, yeah. I, it, it, well, I, I just look at it. I just look at it kind of the way people look at Eastern medicine. It's just it's just a different language. They're describing the same thing. They just don't have a biological frame for it. But yeah. um, so I, I guess I'll say that my my fundamental perspective is that the war on drugs, in addition to misguided being, you know, good drugs and bad drugs. Yeah, it's a fundamental violation of human rights. It's it's and it's never been about reducing drug abuse. It's always had a political overlay. Huh. Persecution of minorities. Uh, we, we see that there's been a great book called the, the New Jim Crow about um, mass incarceration. It's about uh, the, the reason that Florida is in play as a swing state is because there's so many um, Democratic leading people who've been uh, African Americans and minorities been arrested and they've lost their ability to vote. Hmm. So the war on drugs has been about suppression of minorities crazy and so it's it's really something that that's my core belief so therefore the underground psychedelic therapists that are working um i i applaud them for their courage because they are risking their licenses they are risking their freedom and they're doing it because they think that the tools that they have from some of their patients will work great but that for some, it won't. And the tools that they're looking, that we're doing research with, do hold promise to help people who are stuck in other ways. And people are willing to risk their licenses and their freedom in order to do that. One of the things that our therapists tell us who work in our research that's the hardest for them is to go back to their normal patients without MDMA and just to see how they get stuck, but that they, that they could just give them MDMA that they could make more progress. So the underground movement has been growing enormously. Um, 
there's very little um, police activity against it. And ironically, the, 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 the main way that underground therapists get in trouble is you would think it's because something goes wrong in the therapy and the patient reports them. So underground therapy goes bad and somebody doesn't like what happened and reports them. But that's not actually what happened. What, what happens is underground therapists get in trouble because their therapy goes well. And the person that they're working with wants to make some changes in their lives. And the people that are left behind are the ones that call the police. Huh. And that's how underground. So we are very supportive of um, the courage of underground therapists, um, but they're, they're doing work that shouldn't be so risky. And that's why, you know, we hope that the medicalization through the FDA and the drug development will eventually make it so that we don't need to have this underground. You may be surprised to learn that health insurance doesn't always cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with a substantial deductible or copay. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. My goodness, I mean, for that sense of security and safety, why not? We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. For a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get up to $50 e-gift card when you join. Again, it's only $85 a year. And then a $50 e-gift card? Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use code offer Drew. Check out Air Doctor. Air Doctor is a professional quality air purifier with a medical-grade ultra-HEPA filter independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and virus Plus other things, pollen, dust, dust mites, smoke. That's right, Air Doctor captures 100% of particles at 0.003 microns, 100 times more effective than ordinary HEPA filters. And it can circulate air in a 450-square-foot room six times per hour. And we've been spending a lot of time indoors. And uh, listen, the EPA will tell you, indoors can be 100 times more polluted than outdoor. And I think increasingly people are aware of environmental hygiene and the fact that it's something that needs attention. Air Doctor will give you that. They use their exclusive professional whisper jet fans. It takes the guesswork out of clean air. In the auto mode feature, using a laser sensor to detect air quality and automatically adjust to the correct filtration levels. It's a professional quality HEPA air purifier recommended by leading medical experts, an effective way to reduce airborne pathogens and viruses and protect your home. Make sure you get an Air Doctor to keep you and your family safe. Air Doctor comes with no questions asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, use promo code DREW, and you'll receive a 35% discount. That's right, 35% off. Don't know how we do that. But only if you go to Air Doctor Pro A I R D O C T O R P R O dot com and use that promo code Drew. Well, our friends at BetterHelp, you know I'm a big enthusiast, and this podcast, the Doctor Drew Podcast, is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. If you're struggling with mental health issues, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Not a crisis line, not a self-help line. It's a professional counseling line done securely. Therapists have a broad range of expertise. Some may not be locally available in your area, but the service is available for clients worldwide. Lock into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor, schedule weekly video phone or even live chat sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. They make it easy and free to change counselors if needed, and it is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and without the uncomfortable waiting rooms and that kind of thing. Uh, So many people have been using BetterHelp. They're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and I have referred family and patients and been very happy with the services. Our listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash drew. That is betterhelp.com slash drew. Your, the story about the ones left behind creating the problem makes me think of an interesting question that I didn't know I had, 
Uh, so let me just try to frame it, which which is that I feel like in psychotherapy, the patient really is in command of the process, uh, even when they're stuck, right? Is there an, any sort of ethical issue using biological? And this is really just a you know just a curiosity question. I, I don't I don't have a you know a position myself, but it's just this whole issue of people getting angry because somebody changes too much. Essentially, it's kind of interesting. Um, is there any ethical dilemma there in terms of biology? I always worry. For instance, like let me just say where I, I come from with this, which is. I have had plenty of patients go down and use ibogaine or uh, ayahuasca to try to stop their opiate use and whatever. Um, it's it, my experience, just my experience, has been that it rarely works long term. It always works for about six months, uh, but in the cases um, where I've seen it work, there's a personality change in the person. I, I mean, it's a, like I can tell there's a you know something strikingly different about the person and that's when I get worried like oh we're changing the person that's an ethical I don't want to change the person with a with a with a with a pill I want them to be in control of changing right I mean do you tell me what your frame is on that yeah well okay so first off I I agree with you completely about how uh, you know it works for a period of time and then a lot of people relapse yeah now I think that so some, sometimes it works permanently. I've seen it work yeah, permanently, I'm, but I but yeah. I'm not sure those are real addicts. I feel like those are just dependent people who had trouble getting off. No, but, no, but I would disagree separate. on that. But well, sure, I, I, and I don't have any data on that. Just my sense of it. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but I would say that the, the problem with this idea that you know it doesn't work for a lot of these people is that they're hoping for the one dose miracle cure. Yeah. And you have to leave the country to go down to Mexico yeah, yeah, yeah. or somewhere to get ibogaine. If it were a um, legitimate the FDA approved therapy, which we're also interested in working on, um, you might get a booster six months or a year later when you start to feel like, you know, something's slipping. Right. So I, I think it's the idea of the one dose miracle cure that really isn't the right concept. Got for it. People but I mean, but I actually I just don't have an opinion on the IBM, but but t- talk to yeah. me about this person the other, change, the person okay. thing and the ethics okay. of that. Yeah. So what I talked about with LSD about why I would want LSD if I was on a deserted island is that, um, you know, you, you can't, uh, it's harder to negotiate with you. You need to surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still can fight it so that there's a, there, there's a way in which there's a choice that people make to open up to something. And that often does lead to personality change. Um, in fact, one of the big findings from the research at Hopkins and the research that we've done is that, with this psilocybin mystical experience that the dimension, the, the Neo, the, uh, which is one of the main measures of neuroticism, uh, extroversion, extroversion, and um, I don't remember what the O is for, um, but, um, but openness, that's what it is. Yeah, that, that um, openness, personality is, is considered to be more or less permanent throughout your life. And there's been changes in openness in psychedelic research connected to the depth of the mystical experience. So I guess I would answer, answer your the ethical question of what you're saying is there's still an element of choice and in a psychedelic experience if people are wanting to go to something or resist it. It's just more painful to resist it with LSD or Ibogaine. And I think we'd really need to be asking these patients or these people you know, are they comfortable with this personality change? Are, are they glad it happened or do they see it? Well, as, OK, I'm going to push back on that because yeah, that is too yeah. – because it really concerns me, that, that stuff, which yeah. is that A, we, the observer, are putting a value judgment on the openness of the individual, right? Yeah. We're saying, hey, you're better. You're more open. I, yes, that's, mm, right. I, and that's me saying that. I, again, that's not my place, number one. Number two, this is the vampire question. If you, in other words, before you become a vampire, right? The vampire shows up and goes, "It's great. You have to you have to sacrifice your soul, but you live forever, and it's fantastic." And what well, you have to eat other people and stuff. And not being a vampire is a different state that when you get to be the vampire, you may think it's great, right? But you're still a vampire, and and your previous self may not have liked 
vampire. It, it, you see what I'm saying? It, it, it's a transformation of the person, and and that 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 just ethically is a very interesting place to be. And and I get that you put the persons in control of it. I, to me, that mitigates it quite a bit. But we can't we can't go. You're better off as a vampire. You're better off open because we decided that. That's a weird place for us to sit. That's very true. Yeah. But I would say that this idea of the pre-vampire, post-vampire implies that somebody is working well pre-vampire. You've got people that are addicted to opiates that you're talking about. Their pre-state is not healthy for them in many ways. And they are patients and they're seeking. I, I, I get you. I get you. But but there are other roads without becoming a vampire to giving up that pre-state. Now, if you can't, if you really can't, then that's an interesting – then we got a different dilemma, right? It's like the only way we can save you is if you become a vampire. And then it kind of makes sense then it, the, to become a vampire. Okay. Now, now, are you saying that because there's this pharmacological psychedelic adjunct, yeah. that that's different than if you just go to therapy and you have personality change in no. therapy? Well, no. What I'm saying is we think – and this may be wrong. This may be an actual – because I framed it as this. Yeah. We think in the slow process of, of therapy, the patient is in charge of the changes. Now, the reality is plenty of therapists, not only do they necessarily have to insert themselves into the process – they overinsert themselves into the process and do lots of bad things. I see that all the time. But I would argue that's you – know, it's, it's just an interesting landscape. I, well, I don't think we can solve it, but it yeah. fa- kind of fascinates me because I, I don't object to the people becoming a vampire when that's all they got. I, I don't object to it. I just don't – I don't want to be the one going, you're better as a vampire. You need to be a vampire. You understand? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's get back now to this idea that uh, you were just saying about therapists that over-insert themselves. Yeah, yeah. So the essence of our method, we, we have to have a standardized method. For FDA drug regulation, drug development research, we have to standardize the drug, but we also have to standardize the therapeutic intervention. Yes. And so we've developed a treatment manual. We call it interdirected therapy. So of the eight hours of a therapeutic session with MDMA, Around half the time, people's eyes are closed. They're listening to music. They're having these beautiful metaphorical stories they're telling themselves about mm. their lives mm. and imagery. You know, one of the vets came back. He had terrible rage after coming back from Iraq. And he had the image of the warrior self locked in a cage inside him. And so when his eyes are closed, he's sort of mm. making friends with this warrior self, opening the cage, putting the key, you know, and realizing they have to go together for it. But people... The other half of the time, people are more or less talking to the therapists. If it's LSD or psilocybin, it's more like 80 or 90% eyes closed, inner experience, the rest of the time talking to the therapist. But the essence of the method called inner-directed is that we support what's emerging in the person. We, we don't do guided imagery. We don't do uh, techniques like uh, there'll be elements of cognitive processing therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. There'll be elements of prolonged exposure, which we spoken about before to confront the trauma, but it's in response to what the patient is revealing initially. And we don't have a sense of the proper trajectory, or you must talk about your trauma now. People sometimes go and talk about beautiful experiences from their childhood that they'd forgotten to draw strength to then go into the more painful thing. So there's an element of choice in the therapeutic method, even though there's this, as the, as the way we practice it. Even though there's the administration of a pharmacological agent to facilitate the process, it's still supporting people where they want to go and to try or, or what's emerging. And, and a lot of times we work with a fellow, Bessel Vanderkoek, who's um, I know him well. No more. Yeah, the body keeps the score. Yep. So he's the principal investigator of our Boston site. Oh, fantastic. And, and he's now thinking that MDMA is the best approach to PTSD. Oh, man. Also, has he said that publicly? Yes, he has. And he's Good. written about it in his books. And Good. also um, Dick Schwartz, who does uh, internal family systems. We, we're doing work because people all the time under the influence of MDMA, they start saying a part of me feels this, a part of me feels that. And you can kind of weigh internal conflicts that mm. way it gets externalized. So um, I, I think that what what I meant to say here by talking about Bessel and the body keeps the score is that sometimes we're not ready to have a conscious thought, but pains or things emerge in our body. Yeah. Uh, the, the best example that, that I can give for that is one guy, time I was sitting with this guy. He was a German psychiatrist. And under the influence of MDMA, his arm became paralyzed. Uh. 
and he couldn't work it. It just was paralyzed. And he was like scared. And, and we're like, look, your arm is this. There's something psychosomatic going on here. Your arm is not paralyzed. We don't need to take you to the emergency room. Let's just play it out and see what happens. And he calmed down enough. And over the course of a couple hours, he told us the story about how um, he and his mother and his siblings were around the deathbed of their father. Mm. And they had to decide whether to take him off life support. And since he was the doctor, he wrote this order saying, take him off life support. And he said the problem was that he hated his father. Mm. And this conflict was, did he kill his father? And this was the arm that was paralyzed, was the arm that wrote the order to say, take him off of life support. Wouldn't, wouldn't Dr. Freud have loved this? Yeah. And, and so over the course <laughs> of crazy. the hour, as he tells the story, then the feeling comes back to his arm and he's totally fine and not paralyzed and no damage. You know? Wild. So it's just to say that we support whatever's emerging, even if we or and the patient don't understand it. Well, it's funny. I, I have zero resistance to the idea of MDMA therapy, though Though I, I always worry. The other thing I worry about is the timeline problem in, in uh, mental health research, which is – because I, I see this in addiction medicine all the time. That the timelines are so short. They make all kinds of crazy conclusions and you know sweeping yeah. mandates that are based on three-month windows with a disease that takes years to treat and has a very long you know arc to it. Uh, h- how do you manage that issue? Okay. Well, first off, um, you're totally right about that. And I think that's some of the um, work with psilocybin. Um, you know, they, they just use like three week follow ups. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a zero. It's, it's not it's not pneumonia. It's not this is a brain thing. It's a way different deal. And you could be in the psychedelic afterglow. And it, yeah, it, what yeah. really tough. So the, the good news. Well, the way we structure things is to avoid the psychedelic afterglow. Our primary outcome measure between the uh, experimental group and the control group is two months after the last experimental session. So that's not very long. But we also but that's the, the well. I'm guessing you personally have lots of long-term follow-up. I'm, I'm guessing well, it may not be published, but I'm certain you have lots of long-term experience. Well, well, okay. So we do the two-month follow-up for FDA. We do a 12-month follow-up yeah. for the insurance companies. Oh. They're not going to spend all the money if <laughs> right. it's not durable. Right, right. We have done a three and a half year follow-up on some of our patients. Isn't that funny? The insurance company gets priority over the science. The FDA oh. says yes, but that doesn't mean that it gets adopted. So we've got a higher standard uh, for the insurance company crazy. than for the FDA. It's crazy. Yeah. But what we have done, um, we're doing now a long, very long-term follow-up to all of the people in phase two. We're in phase two. Well, Some t- of them t- let's, go, let's go to the trial now. Tell us all about the trial. Okay. So uh, what, what I started out by saying is 1992, we did the first phase one dose-response safety study. Starting in uh, 1999 and 2000, we started working on MDMA for PTSD, and we did studies in the United States, Israel, Switzerland, and Canada. And we did 16 years of that. We treated about 105 people in six different studies, and that was called um, that. Those are small pilot studies, exploratory studies, where the purpose is to try to refine your treatment method to figure out. Uh, who's your proper patient population? Um, who do you exclude? Who do you include? Um, what are your measures? You know, it, so 30 years from the start of MDMA, of MAPS, I mean, in 1986 to November 29, 2016, we had our end of phase two meeting with FDA. And we presented our phase two data. And what we showed is that at the um, the control group, now these are, we felt that we have to work with the hardest patients. Um, and so we enroll people who've previously attempted suicide. A lot of PTSD studies exclude people if they've actively tried to kill themselves. Huh. And we only worked with treatment-resistant people. Sure. And on average, they were severe PTSD. And so what we showed, though, is that at this two-month follow-up, the control group, 23%, no longer had PTSD. Crazy. Now, this is after getting substantial amount of therapy. Yeah. Either no MDMA or low, low dose, very low dose therapy. What was your control group? Well, it's it's the same people uh-huh. who are randomly assigned, and you get um, basically it's um, forty two hours of therapy. Got it. So there's three eight hour MDMA sessions, and there's twelve ninety minute non drug psychotherapy sessions. So there's three ninety minute sessions before the first experimental session, which is um, either MDMA or 
inactive placebo or in phase two was low dose that didn't have a therapeutic effect, but might cause some confusion. Um, and then there's three of these 90 minute sessions for integration after each experimental session. And so you get 12 of these and then the final follow-up at two months and then the one year for the insurance companies. So what we showed in that frame, so the control group gets therapy without MDMA versus therapy with MDMA. And so we showed that 23% in the control group no longer had PTSD at the two-month follow-up. Wow. But the people that got MDMA, 56% no longer had PTSD, more than twice as good. And more importantly, and in phase two, what we did is everybody that was in the control group could immediately go themselves through the experiment again, but this time get therapy with MDMA. So what we showed at the one-year follow-up is that two-thirds no longer had PTSD. And of the one-third that still had PTSD, almost all, but not all, had clinically significant reductions of PTSD symptoms. So it was tremendously successful, and we had a very good safety record. And so the FDA said, yes, you can go to phase three. And phase three are the larger studies that are designed to prove safety and efficacy in order to get permission to market. So instead of going straight to phase three, which we were approved to do, we elected to go through what's called a special protocol assessment process, which is... Um, is this an FDA criteria? Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's an option. Most it's pharmaceutical companies... I've never, heard, I've never heard of it before. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. It, it's, it's what, what, what you do is you negotiate every aspect of your drug development pro program, your phase three designs, your statistical analysis plan, everything, all the other animal toxicity studies, everything they want to know. You get a complete package of what it's going to take to make the drug into a medicine. And if you can agree to this, you get what's called an agreement letter to successfully conclude this, the special protocol assessment process. Now that delayed things by um, almost, uh, well, three quarters of a year. Mm. But because of the problem of doing a, a double blind study with psychedelics, I felt that we needed to do this extra negotiations with FDA because we wanted them to agree on how we're going to approach um, the methodological design of the studies. And we didn't want them to complain later that they didn't like what we did because really there is no perfect way to do a double blind study with drugs that are so strong that you usually can tell if you've taken them. Right, right. So, um, well, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So right after we succeeded in the negotiation with FDA about special protocol assessment, then they gave us breakthrough and breakthrough therapy designation, which is the most important designation for the most promising studies. And then we started phase three. So in October of 2020, we got the results from our first phase three study. And since then, um, we have started our second phase three study. Now, these studies have been uh, delayed by COVID, but what we had agreed with FDA that we would do two phase three studies, each with 100 people, and half would get therapy without MDMA with inactive placebo, and half would get therapy with active MDMA. Mm. And it would be this three-session model of the 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, and we use two therapists instead of one. Two, we two. use. Go ahead. Use, so it's 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 an unusual situation. Again, our operating approach was how do we maximize therapeutic outcomes? Yeah, yeah, I get it. But two therapists outcome. for the same patient, or, or two for the same patient, okay, and we use a male female team. Interesting. So now, so you're all, all potential covariate, you know, confounding variables are trying to be controlled here, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay. now we are just starting to do group therapy research. We're just in the. Oh, that'd be interesting too. Oof. Yeah. And this will be probably at the Portland uh, vet VA. Um, so we'll start group therapy with vets. But we, what we we want the the male female team. It's not necessary. Most underground therapists that we talk about are one person. They do fine. But with with the male female team, a lot of times people who develop PTSD have had a series of traumas, often going into childhood. We, we talk about the ACE scores for adverse childhood experiences. And so to have like a well-functioning male-female support team often helps people who didn't have that when they were growing up. And also some people, you know, you, you, the sort of gender stereotypes that we have that, you know, women are more nurturing. And, and so sometimes though people will 
um, speak to the female therapist or speak to the male therapist right, exclusively right, or, right, or differently. Uh, yeah, differently. So, so anyway, that that's our approach. We we think that group therapy we won't need two for one or you know, and and we want one person eventually to be the licensed therapist and the other to be an intern or to be a student. Why learning. is that? Because for finance, for the insurance company. So I we don't. See. I see. And, and also, that's a great way to train the next generation sure, of therapists. Sure. To have them work as an apprentice, sort of, for the first person. But we'd like to keep the two-person model for individuals. So anyway, we negotiated all that with FDA. We have completed our um, first phase three study, and just several days ago, we heard from Nature Medicine, which is one of the highest impact factor journals in in, in medicine and in science. Anything would, anything in the nature family is the highest highest, uh, what should yeah. we say, prestige, the most prestige. Yeah, and, and we just feel that since it's been so stigmatized, psychedelics and MDMA in particular, that, that um, yeah, we need to go for external validation. So I, I, Nature Medicine said yes. Congratulations. Uh, I can't wait to read this and when it does come out, it'll be fantastic to see all this. Um, yeah. I, and I, I can share the results. Well, of course, sleep is one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself. It's the restorative part of the day. It's when you heal. We clean out uh, literally some of the debris from our brain. And, of course, we have things that keep us awake at night. There are many, many reasons why you can't get seven hours of sleep. But something that has been shown to be associated with improved sleep is magnesium. That's right. Believe it or not, around 75% of people don't get enough magnesium. This can explain sleep problems. Do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement. They may not have full spectrum. They may not have the same benefit since there are seven unique forms. You best if you can get all seven and hopefully that will improve some of the calming sleep enhancing effects as well magnesium breakthrough by by optimizers is your solution simply take two capsules before you go to bed you'll be amazed how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up for an exclusive offer for my listeners go to magbreakthrough.com slash drew use dr drew 10 during checkout to save 10 percent again that is magbreakthrough one word, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use code Dr. Drew 10 at checkout to save 10%. Well, I'm sure you've had the experience of having difficulty finding a physician, finding to get, you know, to get an appropriate appointment. It takes forever. Or you get in there and you find out they don't take your insurance. Well, now there is the ZocDoc app. You just download it for free. Easiest way to find a physician and instantly book an appointment. Lots of choices. You can search locally. Make sure they take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews, book an appointment. And whether you need primary care, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, they have good psychiatric referrals. It's very hard to find a psychiatrist these days. They've got them. Ophthalmologists, other specialists, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Drew. Download that ZocDoc app. Sign up for free. All of it's free. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. And listen, I told you, it's on my phone. And I've searched through and looked at all the excellent referrals they have there. It's ZocDoc.com. Makes healthcare easy. And now, of course, you know, it's a time when we got to make sure we're appropriately getting our health taken care of. We've been so focused on COVID, it's time to get back into routine healthcare. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Drew, download the ZocDoc app for free and sign up for free and book a top-rated physician. Many are available as soon as today. That is ZocDoc.com slash Drew. I I think we all need to get out there and keep chanting about this weird, stigmatizing, bizarre idea that good chemicals and bad chemicals exist. Uh, and also, th- there's an equally high anxiety about uh, triggering addiction in people that just have zero risk for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and not only that, even somebody with risk, you know, there's 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 ways to manage that risk. And, and by the way, the genetic burden of one given risk is not the same as the genetic burden of another risk or, and, and, and whatever environmental cofactors might be contributing. So, and, and it's um, it's very concerning to me. It's very concerning because uh, and, and, and that we just seem completely um, confused as at least – are you in the United States or are you in Canada? You, uh, no, talking, I'm in Boston. You're in Boston. In Boston. We, we, you talked to me about Montreal before the microphone yeah. heated up. I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but so you know what I'm talking about. And we're just grave, grave confusion out here. 
Yeah. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that um, several of the people in our studies have said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. <laughs> Be- because when you, you're a PTSD patient and you take it in therapy and you're working through problems, yeah. it's not like you pop the pill and now you love everybody and everything's easy. Yeah. The, the other thing is that we've, and we've tracked people afterwards. We don't see them going to use illegal ecstasy on their own after the therapy. No, it's not. That's not the way it, it's not the way it works. People don't associate <laughs> this painful therapeutic uh, process with fun. But but there's also been a study um, in England uh, with uh, David Nod Ben Sessa um, that was with MDMA for alcohol use disorder. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, and, and it works. And it works. It works. Bit. Yeah. Because a lot of times people are driven to drug abuse because of unprocessed trauma. So if you well, can help I, I would just say the, the way I think of it is trauma is the rocket fuel for addiction. Yes. yes I, I wouldn't put it as a causative necessarily so much as the rocket fuel. And, and it certainly yeah. contributes to why somebody is looking outside of their body to regulate the internal experience. Trauma is the, the inciting – it's not necessarily trauma, but trauma is the big inciting agent. And then if you also have uh, trauma, then now you've got – and you and you have the genetics for addiction. Now you've got the rocket fuel in place. And and I think some of it is – I'm going to interview uh, Alan Shore again in a, in a couple of days, actually tomorrow. And and he has this concept of somatoform dissociation. Have you, have you heard his stuff? Uh, and, and I think I think that's some of what trauma does. It disorganizes what comes out of the body in terms of the feeling states that we experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they become intolerable, <laughs> and and you have to reorganize that. You have to re-regulate that. And uh, for whatever reasons, these drugs seem to accelerate that process, particularly for people yeah. that are blocked. Yeah, yeah. They, they do. And, and so we, we've not seen that fear of people um, you know, going in, to in, And I got to say back to the vampire thing I was talking about earlier, I, I am biased. You know, I, we all have our clinical bias, right? Yeah. Uh, and I get to see – I throughout my clinical career saw lots of people that abuse these drugs and I saw the, the neurotoxic effects. <laughs> I saw lots of terrible consequences from people that used a lot of, yeah. of yeah. both LSD or MDMA and it, it ain't good. Um, but it – you know, it's back to your original statement of uh, who who said it, Perseus or Paracelsus? Paracelsus. Paracelsus. Yeah, yeah that, that you can yeah, hurt yourself with just about anything. Uh, and and that's that's what people need to understand. And properly studied, we can figure out where that spot is. You know what I mean? To make sure that this we do no harm. Yeah, and and, and our therapeutic approach is only a few doses of MDMA. It's not yeah. like here you take this every day for the rest of your of course, life. Uh, of course, it, it's yeah. just a few deep interventions and. And I think the goal for us, again, we're a nonprofit pharma, even though we own the for-profit benefit corp. Our goal is not to maximize money. It's to, to give people the deepest therapy we can give with the fewest sessions possible so that then they don't need drugs at all. Right. And that's to, to affect their baseline. And so the, the results from the phase three, the first thing that they showed is that um, it's very, we, we had one person who um, attempted to kill herself twice during the study. And we had another person who had such strong suicidal ideation that she checked herself into a hospital to avoid killing herself. As it turned out, at the end of the study, both were in the placebo group. Oh, oh my goodness. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because they had um, – we, we also require people to stop SSRIs or stop any psychiatric medicine. Oh, ooh. yeah, that's dangerous. So, okay, there you well, go. It, it has to be done in a tapered process. It I know, I get it to highly controlled, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking issue with yeah, it. I'm just yeah. saying that but, it's but dangerous. It is. It, it's, it, it's a hard it, study. This filter off of people that oh. – the, the SSRIs often um, – Blunt the the highs and the lows. Yep, yep. And, and but they make it tolerable for people. But yep. they still, to get into our study, have to have severe PTSD. So, and and when you give MDMA to people who are on SSRIs, the SSRIs blunt the effect of the MDMA. Right, I, I am aware of that. Yeah, right. Rick, so, so, I, I'm running out oh, of time. Uh, okay. So so uh, let's uh, uh, wrap it uh, up. Okay, okay. So um, our findings for our first phase three study were the the statistical findings were. Robust. What that means is that you have to get 0.05, which is one out of 20 that it's due to chance. We had one out of 10,000. We had 0.0001. That's your your p-value. Yeah. That's great. You look at effect sizes because you can have statistical significance about trivial effects. 
So just the high statistical significance doesn't mean anything by itself. Which is another problem in mental health research. So good. And what'd you find? Yeah. Well, what we did is we looked at it two ways. One is called placebo subtracted effect size. That's the way the FDA wants us to look at it. So that means you take, um, you're sort of looking at your control group and you sort of subtract those benefits from the experimental group and what you're left right. with. Right. So, so whatever, whatever benefit was provided by placebo minus is, 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 is taken away, backed out of the actual therapeutic group. Yeah. And, except for us, the placebo is therapy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have a 0.91 effect size placebo subtracted, which is large. It's, it's way better than SSRIs. It's actually terrific. 0.91. Great. However, when you do the within subjects effect size, when you, cause, cause the 0.91 is you've subtracted the therapy out of the MDMA plus therapy. You're only left with the MDMA effect. Yep. In the subjects that got both, they had a 2.1 effect. Size. That's amazing. So that's the really, and so safety record, uh, the um, p-value. The other thing is um, we had no significant variability according to the sites. We had 15 sites, two in Israel, two in Canada, one in Montreal, one in Vancouver, and 11 throughout the United States. So that's a big thing for the FDA, too. Because How big was your N? It was just 90 people. 90 in each group or 90 total? 90 total. Yeah. And so, but we that's... pre-agreed that with the FDA because what they said is oh, that- Oh, good. Because I would say that's where they pushed back on you. Yeah, so, but they can't. Yeah, they, good. Because, um, they said that we can prove efficacy uh, quicker, smaller number of subjects than they want to see for uh, ther- for safety. So so because of COVID, they let us go down from 100 uh, to 90. Uh, the second phase three study is going to be 100. We've already done over 100 in phase two. And so we have a lot of data. So what, what we showed is that there's no effect by site, which means that you don't have two therapists over here that are treating 50% of your people and are doing great and yeah. everybody else isn't figuring it out. Yeah. So what it means is it can scale. And so it meets the criteria for a potential FDA approval on the basis of one phase three study with confirmatory evidence from phase two studies. And we've applied to the FDA for that. We think they're going to reject it because it's no so new and controversial. They're going to want us to do the second phase three study. Oh, interesting. Doing it anyway. But the results were fantastic. I, I would be. I, I'm a little surprised by it because this is something that's been swirling around for so long. And they're, they're uh, it, you know, it's it's MDMA therapeutic. You know, in a in a as a as an adjunct to therapeutic. Pro- I don't know. I think they might be more positive than you think. This I has think been coming for a long time. Self, well, it's bureaucratic self protectionism. Yeah. So what's going on is because we were protected by the special protocol assessment. Yeah. We have, of the two people I mentioned, the first one has to be a therapist, licensed therapist. Second one doesn't even need a license. But, right. Um, okay. Now, FDA has tried to impose on the psilocybin researchers and on all of our new studies that the lead person needs to have an MD or a PhD, oh, which doesn't make sense at all. And they want a doctor on site rather than on call, which we don't have to have. We need a doctor for prescribing and for screening. But we don't need a doctor on site. That's going to increase costs, and it yeah. really doesn't make sense. So we're arguing these things out with FDA, but we see them being more concerned. They believe we're going to succeed. They believe they're going to end up approving it, but they're worried that if something goes wrong, then they get blamed. I see. I get it. Yeah, they really, they're trying to really, like as you said, protect themselves. Well, listen, Dr. Doblin, I've got to wrap this thing up. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll come back and discuss. I love it. Uh, uh, I mean, we just we think about it. We really just did a survey and did one chemical. There's you know multiple <laughs> yeah. other chemicals we could discuss equally as in in detail, in different contexts. But there's a yeah. lot out there, and uh, yeah. and and I've always had great admiration for maps. Uh, congratulations on. I, I actually wanted to do a documentary series on the therapeutic uses of of um, hallucinogenics. Oh. I, yeah, I, I actually pitched it around and. It got rejected everywhere, but maybe it's the same thing you're dealing with with the FDA. Um, well, times have changed, though. I mean, well, I was going to say I've noticed that Netflix doing a whole bunch of stuff now, on, on, yeah. and and they're actually kind of not well done, in my humble opinion. I think you know we we could do a much better job, but but be that as it may, uh, I enjoy speaking to you. I've always wanted to talk to you. I've always uh, been watching maps, sort of as a. Uh, admiringly from afar and uh, to really dig in with you has been a real pleasure and uh, good luck with this. I mean, you're just trying to help people. <laughs> That's all we're all trying to do here. We're trying to help and not hurt. That's our goal. Um, but lots to discuss and it's a, it's a brave new world there you're getting into and I think it will have value. I've always said, you know, if I were dealing with end of life stuff, I would think very seriously about some 
hallucinogenic, yes. uh, uh, if I were having trouble. Or psychedelic. Yeah, I beg your pardon, psychedelic, psychedelic. <laughs> i got to get my nomenclature right. got to get that corrected. Uh, but, uh, again, I hope you'll come back. In the meantime, I thank you for this, and we will see everyone next time. Thank you. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.